Good evening, everybody. We want to welcome you here to our third week of the Esther Bible Study with Brian Young. We're going to be in Esther chapter 4 tonight as he leads us. And Brian, we're thankful for you joining us again this evening. And um, just want to start us off with a word of prayer, and then we're going to hand it right over to Brian. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this evening, this opportunity to continue our study in the Word and specifically the book of Esther. Lord, I pray for a blessing over Brian as he presents. Guide him, Lord. May your spirit truly anoint his, his teaching, his ministry tonight. We ask for your grace upon him, a grace upon our study and our learning tonight. Um, help us to grow in you. And uh, we thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity. And we invite you to come. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Brian. Well, we'll get uh, things opened up here. Um, we are going to be kind of uh, bold to try and maybe even get through two chapters here tonight with uh, chapter four and five. Uh, chapter five is a rather short one, and but I think hopefully we're going to even have some time to have some questions too, so maybe write those down as we are watching, and then we'll see if we can answer some of those when we're done as well. But um, part three is what we're at here tonight. We're going to start in chapter four, verse one. It says this, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. And so if you recall last week, what we discussed, uh, we saw that Haman had been handed over to the Jews, uh, or handed the Jews over, I should say, through this edict, handed them over to death. And everybody was bewildered because it didn't make any sense that this would happen. They had committed no crime. They had done nothing wrong, but yet they were doomed to die. And uh, we've kind of talked about how this very well is a, a picture of what is supposed to happen in end times when Christians are going to be handed over for persecution. There will seem to be no sense of it. It's not going to uh, be because we've done anything wrong. It's just because we follow Jesus. And we, we talked about that there is hope there, though, because God allows this to happen for an ultimate purpose. And that purpose is going to be so that the devil or Haman is going to be destroyed. And so now here we're seeing that Mordecai, learning about all of this, he too is bewildered, but not just bewildered and like, what is going on in this world? Much like we see today with the coronavirus, we see so many people talking and arguing about the politics here and the irrational things and the illogical things. But what we really need to be doing is what Mordecai does here. Not just being in confusion, but going to the Lord Jesus repenting he's, he tears his clothes puts on sackcloth and ashes and this is uh, a way of showing repentance an attitude of his heart it wasn't just complaining it wasn't just you know trying to figure out what's going on it was a matter of going straight to the one who has power to change the situation going to jesus and so he goes out wailing that doesn't mean a lack of faith it's uh, part of basically recognizing repentance. I don't think he's rep uh, wailing as much about his situation as it is about uh, repentance. 
And that's what uh, sackcloth and ashes is a representation of. And I think this is very fitting in the direction that things are going uh, today. I mean, we've already seen in our society how in Seattle, uh, St. Paul, and many places around the country where there are these riots and, and, and there are neighborhoods that are being enveloped and encircled and you could wake up some morning and you're in a mess. Um, that's exactly what happened actually in Nazi Germany. Uh, here's a headline from May of 1934. And the headline reads, Jewish murder plan against Gentile humanity revealed. You know, a lot of these Jews literally woke up one morning and their world was changed completely. Just like what happened here in Esther. What happened here in Nazi Germany is that the Jews were being uh, blamed because of something they did not do. That was, they were said that they had been stealing Christian children and murdering, literally killing them in sacrifices for their Passover, which would be ridiculous that uh, Jews would never do that to begin with. But this was the, the propaganda that was being spread. And this is what we call in history as the blood libels. And uh, so many Jews, they just woke up one morning and here they are being blamed and uh, really an edict for death, you might say, just like what happened there in Esther. Um, again, eventually this, this is a possibility. I'm not trying to be gloom and doom here, but this is a possibility of what could happen in America someday. I'm not saying that's what's happening now, but nonetheless, what, what scripture talks about is someday we will be handed over uh, for persecution. And it may very well look something like this, that it's going to be so fast, so quick, and when that does happen, we can't be, you know, throwing up our arms in disgust and trying to figure it out. We need to be getting down on our knees as Mordecai did immediately and go to the one who has power to change our situation. Uh, I'll show you one more news article here from March of 1935. It reads, do not grow weary, do not lose the grip, so this poisonous serpent may not slip away. Better that one strangles it to death than our misery begin anew. You can see here that this snake is pictured as a Jew, you know, with the, the Jewish nose. And it was portrayed as this because they said that it was best for society and humanity that they be strangled, that they be put down. And this is exactly what we see happening in our society today. If you read many articles, uh, we're seeing more and more about Christians are the ones that uh, really are to blame for spreading this virus of Corona because we don't take it seriously. We don't take life seriously because we have hope in the afterlife. Well, in some senses, that's true. We do have hope. We, we trust our Lord, but um, really it's irrational, the things that they're, they're saying here. So, you know, maybe this is the, some of example foreshadowing of what um, Christianity might experience here in the future. But this, either way, is nonetheless what is going on here in the times of Esther. And I think it is prophetic of what may go on in the future someday in America. But with that said, we're going to go on to verse 2. But he, Mordecai, went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth 
and ashes. And so here we're now seeing the response to this edict. Kind of like I, what I was saying before, this is true repentance. And this is what God wants. He wants us to repent. He wants us to turn to him. Okay, And it wasn't just among Mordecai. It was among the Jews, all of God's people. They were fasting. They were weeping. They were wailing. And, uh, you know, I uh, have been speaking recently on the corona, and, and I said that's one of the things that we should be doing. And I'm not seeing the church doing much of that. I don't think we're taking this seriously enough. Not the virus, but what is going on with this virus, what this virus is bringing, the chaos, the instability in our country, the attacks of Christians and churches, the, the stopping of singing in our churches, uh, the stopping of, of gathering. What we as Christians should be doing is gathering together all the more together to fast, to weep, to wail, and to, to, to be bringing uh, our country to repentance. And this was the response that Mordecai and the Jews had. And so rather than waiting for it to get worse to where we do wake up some morning and we see those kind of headlines, it would probably be good that we start doing this now rather than later. Let me uh, read for you Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12 here. kind of basically says the same thing, that when people repent, when they do this, there is a promise. There is a, a relenting of the hardships that go on. It says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. And I think this is important here when he says, rend your heart not your garments. You know, we can have an outward show of, oh yeah, this is really serious. We need to, we need to be praying about this. And we can throw that out all the time. Yeah, I'll be praying for you. But this is saying, rend your heart. This needs to be coming from genuine repentance, a genuine seeking of God, and a genuine surrender of our own will, our own desires, our own um, independence, and just surrendering it to God and saying, we need you. We need your guidance, and we need you uh, to be the one that we're putting our trust in as well. And so, Lord, help us with our unbelief. Help us with this faith. And so when this happens in, in our country, uh, where there is something maybe similar to what Esther is going on here, remember this. Remember that we have hope, and, but we should not be fighting this battle ourselves, not by our might, but by God's might, his strength. Back to Esther chapter 4, verse 4, continuing on, it says, When Esther's eunuch and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Well, as I was reading this, one of the stories that comes to mind is Moses. You recall that Moses, he grew up in Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's household. He had everything. He was, um, uh, you'd say, rich and had all the social status that he could ever want. But it says in Scripture that he refused to accept the pleasures of life. And ultimately, that is what Mordecai is doing. 
He has chosen self-affliction over the pleasures of the flesh. And I think that we can learn from this today as well, because today I think many are more concerned about the affairs of this world than they are, um, you know, uh, with life and eternity. Uh, we should be thinking about eternity, not the here and now. You know, when I go out and evangelize, and, and some of you maybe have heard this before, but when I evangelize, a lot of times I'll ask people, what do you hope to be doing uh, 15 years from now? And everybody's got a plan that they want in 15 years, you know, whether it be a better retirement, a better job, you know, a new house, a new car, something that they're working towards. And then I ask them, well, what do you hope to be doing in 50 years from now? Well, depending on how old they are, you know, it, it changes things. But bottom line, then I'll say, what do you want to be doing 150 years from now? 300 years, 500 years, a thousand, a million. You see, the point is, is we put so much effort in our life right now after the pleasures of this world and the pleasures of this life. And it's just such a tiny, tiny part of our life. We have an eternity to prepare for, an eternity to set our sights on. And it's so much longer than this time on earth. And that's what we should be investing in. That's what we should be praying for. And so when it says that he would not accept them, he would not accept these clothes, these, these pleasures of the world. He set his mind on what he should be. And that was the kingdom of God and, and eternity. And so that's what Mordecai does, and I think that's what we need to be doing here now as well. In verse 6, so Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So the only way that this edict is going to go away is basically with the impossible, to go into the king's presence. Now, I'll explain why that seems to be impossible here in a minute as we continue the story. But the key here is this, the only way for our troubles to go away in life when we are in trouble, is we need to go into God's presence, to the throne room of God and seek his help as well. And that's what, you know, Mordecai ultimately is instructing her to do. Go to the king's presence. Go there. And this is really what, what Jesus does. Remember, Mordecai is a picture of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He points us to the Father. The Father points us to the Son. And everything in our life ultimately should be pointed to Jesus, to the Father. It, it all goes back to that. No matter what's going on in our life, that's where our eyes need to be fixed. You know, Hebrews says we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's what we need to be reminding ourselves all the time, especially with what's going on in the world right now and, and the financial situation of many churches, many individuals. Um, they're wondering, what, what do I do? What do I do? Well, here's your answer. Put your eyes on him 
and uh, repent, get down on our knees and start uh, calling out uh, people to, to join you, to fast, to pray, and to get right, to, to look at how much time we've been spending in Facebook and TV, Netflix, whatever the case might be, compared to how much time you've spent in the Word and down on our knees in prayer, examining ourselves in those things. And that's ultimately what we see the call to do. But Esther needs to go into the presence of God. Now, verse 9 continues that Hathok went back and he reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. She instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now, in previous weeks, we've talked about the parable there in Matthew 22, that wedding. And those who did not have wedding clothes, it says they were not to be there. They were not to be in the king's presence. They were to be destroyed. Okay, you have been, you've got to be called to come into the throne room of God, called to come into his presence. And so, in essence, that's exactly what scripture says, that unless the Father draws you, you cannot come to Yeshua Jesus, okay? Uh, you, you can't do it. And by the way, in scripture, we see both of those. You can't come to Jesus without the Father drawing him, and you can't come to the Father without Jesus because they're one. But you don't get to just waltz in to the kingdom of God. You don't waltz into God's presence. It is a very serious thing. He is a holy God. And so I think today, as I said, we have this attitude that God is this you know, buddy of ours. No, he is holy beyond compare. And every time we see somebody entering the presence of God, they fall down on their knees. That's the kind of holiness that we're talking about. And this is a picture of what we're seeing in Esther, that Esther can't just waltz in to see the king. She has to be called. She has to be summoned. And the only way to be welcomed is if that gold scepter is extended to you. Much like the only way, there is no other name a man under heaven a man may be saved but by the name of Jesus. Unless that name of Jesus is extended to you, you cannot enter into God's presence. So let's look at what Revelation says about God's throne here, just to get a little better picture of that. In chapter 4 of Revelation verse 1, just kind of try and immerse yourself and, and, and put yourself being there, sitting or standing rather there. And, and seeing what is described here. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold on their heads. Okay, and it's going to continue on here and says uh, in verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning, 
rumblings, peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were the four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, this doesn't sound like an environment that you're just going to waltz into and say, Hey, I'm here, right? This is, this is something you're going to waltz into and say, Wow, what is this? You're going to be in awe. You're going to be humbled. You're probably going to be wanting to shrink down. And it's the same picture we see all throughout Scripture. The priests, they couldn't go into the holy place unless they were first called, called to be a priest. God said, not anybody can come in. You have to be a high priest. And even then, only once on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, are you even allowed to come into my throne room, okay, that most holy place. And if anybody went in any other time, they would die. And even once they were invited to come in, they had to wash out, out at that laver, their feet and their hands, a picture of a clean walk with God, that they weren't just coming in with any attitude just before because they were called. They were coming in with humility, with humbleness, with, with uh, repentance, and relying on God's word, God's uh, power to have cleansed them with that laver. And so that's the same with us, that we don't just waltz into the kingdom of God. Just like Esther can't just go into the kingdom, can't go into the throne room, there's a preparation that needs to be made. Verse 12 of Esther 4 says, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, what Mordecai is saying is, don't think that you alone are going to be saved. Okay, it's not going to be like that. As a matter of fact, really that's the way it is for us as Christians. We see many examples of this through the Bible too, about the lepers and, you know, the, the nine that leave and don't come back, but one comes back to be thankful and so on. That God has given us a job to do. Before he ascended to heaven, he gave us a job. And that job is to go and spread the gospel because God desires that none should perish. He doesn't want anybody to die. And this is Mordecai's plea here too, isn't it? He doesn't want anybody to die. But he says, you have been put here for a pos in this position for a reason. Likewise, when God has saved us, who are we to keep this great gift of the gospel to ourselves? We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be going and spreading this word so that more people can be invited in to that wedding banquet. And because if they're not, they will perish. And uh, I'm reminded of Ezekiel, the, the, the watchman on the wall. He says, if you warn them and they repent, great. 
Okay, but if you warn them and they don't repent, he says, that's not your fault, that's their fault. Blood be on their head. Okay, but if you say nothing, the blood be on your head. And so Ezekiel, when he's talking about that, that's exactly what we see here going on in Esther. And I think that's an exact picture of what's supposed to be happening with us in the kingdom of God. That We can't be silent. We need to be warning people that judgment is coming. That there is an edict that's out there. And we will die without Jesus Christ, without our sins being covered by his blood, because nobody can be good enough. And don't think that God has given you this wonderful grace, you know, to squander and to hide it yourself. You know, even that, that whole thing about the talents and the guy who goes and he hides it and he buries it. And then the master comes back, here it is. And the king's not happy with that. He says, you should have invested it. And we're to invest what God has given us, his love and sharing it with others. So we should have that assurance of Mordecai, knowing that God is going to rescue why? Because God has promised. See, Mordecai has that. He, he's not like, okay, we're all doomed. and like, It all's on your shoulders, Esther. He says, you need to go in, Esther. But he says, who knows? If you die, you die, basically. But bottom line is, I can tell you this, God is going to bring deliverance. I know that because he's promised. Deliverance is coming regardless of what we do. Regardless of whether you go share the gospel or not, Jesus is coming back, okay? Because it's his faithfulness and his promises that we are to recognize just as Mordecai recognizes here. And so, you know, when I was reading this as well, I tried to put myself in Esther's shoes. You know, would I go? Would I go in there knowing that I could die if I go into the presence of the king? Would I try to save myself? Or would I put my own uh, well-being at risk to save others? And, you know, I, I'd like to think that I would do what Esther did. But, boy, I'll tell you, I think that it's easy for us to read this. But the kind of faith that it took for her to go into that presence um, is remarkable. I don't think any of us would be able to really put ourselves into those shoes without actually being in those shoes. Well, on this next slide here, we see how she responds. She says in verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king. Even though it's against the law, if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So her response is, I listen to Mordecai. Just as our response is this, Jesus has told us that we have a job to do, to go warn others, that we are to go and in a sense be lifting others up in prayer. Going in, now we know that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. But yet he's commanded us to be praying for others, to pray for our enemies and all of that. And in essence, that's what it is. We're going into the throne room of God, bringing in the cares of the world, the cares of our family, all of these other needs that we have. And we're doing it with boldness. But this is what Jesus has asked us to do. This is what Mordecai has asked Esther to do. 
and Esther listens. And I'm sure her flesh wanted to do otherwise. But we too are presented on a daily basis with these very same options of obedience or not obedience, blessings or curses. And so I think we all need to ask ourselves as we look at God's word that he has given us these instructions, are we obeying? Are we living up, uh, as scripture would say, living up to the calling that God has given us, to, to be worthy of the calling that he has given us? I know I'm not. I don't think any of us are worthy of it. But we should certainly strive to do that very thing. Well, that ends chapter four, and uh, like I said, we're going to get through two chapters because the fifth chapter here is kind of small. Um, in chapter five, it just continues on, just uh, the story builds. Uh, we remember that the chapter breaks and things like that are not something that uh, is in the original of scripture. That's a man-made thing, and so the story is just continuing. Um, one other thing that I think, too, was interesting is the three days, that they were to fast and pray uh, for these three days. And I think that's important, that we need to call others to, to be in this fight with us. Like I said, that we should be gathering together, two or three are gathered. That uh, churches right now, more than ever, should be calling for corporate fasting and, and, and corporate prayer, um, because we need it. We need it. Goes on, it says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on the throne in the hall facing the entrance. When standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter. So Esther, the scepter, then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the king. It will be given you. Now, the first thing, note that it's on third day. Uh, I can't not think of Hosea 5 and chapter 6 here. If you go to Hosea 5 towards the end of the chapter and moving into the first few verses of chapter 6, it's going to say that God would come down. He would be rejected. He's going to go back to his place. But it says after two days is when the Lord will come back. So that on the third day, we would be able to go into his presence. It is a picture, I personally believe, I see a symbol and a pattern throughout scripture of seven days of creation. Where we see each day of creation represents a thousand years of history. And the first four days of creation all are a picture, and I'm not going to get into all the details too much, but a picture of up to Christ. And then you have two New Testament days, and then a Sabbath rest for all God's people. And so those three days that Hosea 5 and 6 seem to be talking about is after two days. God's going to go back to his place for two days. That on the third day, he would return, and we would be able to live in his presence. Go into the throne room of God on that third day. And that seems to be exactly what is going on here now just a little nutshell so i don't sound too crazy here martin luther and many early church fathers even the jewish sages all believed that a day of creation was a picture of a thousand years 
As an example, we see the first day of creation is a separation of light and darkness. The first thousand years is dominated by uh, Adam and Eve separating good and evil. We have the second day, which was um, the separation of waters, uh, the, the firmament being separated for creation. But as for the period of history, it's the second thousand years is dominated by Noah separating waters. The third day of creation, we see the, the land, vegetation coming about. And that's when we see God on the third thousand years of history filling the land with his people as he calls Abraham. Then the fourth day is the sun, moon, and stars. The fourth thousandth year we see dominates the next thousand years of Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel, which we see in Joseph's dream that the sun and the moon and the stars were bowing down before him. A picture of Israel, the formation of Israel and the growing of Israel. Then we get into the fifth day, which is birds and fish. And the fifth day, thousandth year is dominated by the first New Testament period, dominated by, you know, the Christian schools of fish and, and uh, the Holy Spirit and the dove. And then finally, the sixth day was the, filling the earth with man and uh, land animals, but ultimately filling the earth. And in this last thousand years, we've seen an explosion of population like we've never ever seen before, uh, exponential growth. But anyway, um, going on here, looking at this verse here as well, why didn't Esther die going into the presence of the king? For one reason, it says because the king was pleased that Esther found favor with him. Guys, this is the only way we get into the kingdom of God, that if God is pleased with us, and guess what? Only one thing is going to please him. Not how many you know, uh, prayers you said, not how many times you went to church, but that you confessed and believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you followed your Savior. And this is what Esther is doing, following Mordecai's orders, going into the presence, and she is found to be pleasing. And that's what we are to do as well. She heeded the voice, and we are to heed the voice of God. But that voice is ultimately, uh, like I said, to call on the name of Jesus, repent of our sins. So, again, a clear picture of Jesus there, I think, as well. I want to kind of highlight some of these aspects that Mordecai is a picture of Jesus. Uh, we've we've kind of talked about it here and there as we've gone through this book. Um, first of all, if you remember way back when, when it introduced Mordecai, it said he was a Jew. It seems to be kind of almost redundant or unnecessary to record that fact that he was a Jew. Well, I think that that's intentional because Ultimately, that's uh, what Jesus is. Jesus is a Jew. As a matter of fact, there's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, and it says that in the end times, 10 Gentiles from all nations and languages are going to go and grab on to the tzitzit, the, the hem of one Jew's robe, and say, take us with you. We've heard God is with you. In other words, I think that's a prophecy that Gentiles were going to go and grab on to the hem of one Jew. In other words, the hem of Jesus. And by the way, those the hem is a picture of the commandments of God, the scriptures say in Numbers. And so 
what it's saying is we're going to grab on to Jesus, a Jew. Okay, we're going to grab on to his teaching, his word. Anyway, uh, the second thing is we see that Haman, uh, a picture of the devil, wants Mordecai to bow down. And day after day after day, he's being pressured to do this. And Mordecai doesn't waver in the least. He refuses to bow down. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. We see in the temptation that Satan can say, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus keeps going and saying, it is written. It is written. Takes him to the word of God. And so this is kind of a picture there too. We also see uh, in chapter 3, back then we saw that the people, the Jews were called the people of Mordecai. It's very interesting. Okay. Mordecai was a Jew, but now it's, it calls all of Israel the people of Mordecai. That's a very bold, strange statement, unless this is a picture of Jesus. Because that is what we are, are the people of God, the people of Jesus. And even Jesus, we see when he was being crucified, the sin above his head was king of the Jews. He was the one the Jews belonged to. Okay, and that's what Mordecai is here. Uh, number four here as well. Esther was wise, as I just got talking about, because she listened to the counsel of Mordecai that she needed to go in and, and into the presence of God. And likewise, Israel is considered wise because we listen to Yeshua. We listen to his commands. You know, even Jesus said, if you are my disciples, you'll do what I say. We even see in the Old Testament, I think it's Deuteronomy, when the people say, you know, what other nation has, has there ever been that God has given them these commands that set them apart from everybody else that shows their wisdom? And so when we heed God's word, um, it's wise. In John eight thirty one, it shows Jesus saying that, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Indeed, when you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Or John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Numbs to the Father except through me. And we see that this whole time, Esther is there because of Mordecai. Mordecai has prepared her, told her what to do, all of these kind of things. She wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Mordecai. And um, had she not abided in Mordecai's word? And that's the picture we see here of Jesus as well. Going on to verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And it continues. Esther replied, my, my petition and request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day, happy and in high spirits. 
But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Now, many things that we can talk about in this. First of all, let's back up a little bit here. Again, if it pleases the king. Yes, she uh, is being uh, pleasing to the king. We talked about that. But one of the things that I think is very uh, important to look at is the fact that she is offered the kingdom, even up to half of the kingdom. What is your request? I'll give it to you. Is that not exactly what Jesus has told us? Okay, that we can go and seek him in prayer and whatever we ask would be given to us. We could say to this mountain, move, and it will be moved if it's in faith. Okay, now don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be a name it, claim it kind of doctrine or theology here. But what I am is saying is this, is when our desire is for God and for the kingdom, that's basically what God is saying. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. And this is what Esther is being told by the picture of God here again. Esther, a picture of the church. God is saying to the church, ask, it'll be given to you. So like I said, you can't even move a couple of verses without seeing this parallel, uh, this picture just unraveling everywhere we go. Now the other thing then here is we see that Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Now, Haman is all excited about being invited to this banquet. Things are going his way, but none of it brings joy, complete joy, as long as this Mordecai does not bow down to him and worship him. See, guys, this is what Satan wants. He wants our worship. He wanted God's worship. Remember in Matthew 4, time and time again, if you will bow down and worship me, if you are the Son of God, do this, obey me, give me that worship. And he doesn't get it. And what does that do? It causes him to be enraged. And this is exactly what we even see in Revelation. I think it's chapter 12 when, when we see that he goes after the woman. And then it says he goes after her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God, those who follow God, those who are not in him worship, he's enraged by. So I guess the lesson that I get out of this is, do you want to put a damper on Satan's joy, on, on his excitement? Follow Jesus. Follow his example. Don't give the devil praise. Don't give him worship. And you say, well, I don't worship the devil. I, I, you know, as Christians, as believers, I understand that we don't. But I'll tell you this. In every time that we have actions, there's either obedience or disobedience. Romans says anything done apart from faith is sin. In other words, if I am not following God, what am I doing? Not following God. In other words, if I'm not obeying, I'm disobeying. And if I'm disobeying, who's receiving the praise? Who's receiving the worship? Well, the devil is. This is why the devil loves disobedience. This is why he's called the man of lawlessness. And so don't allow the devil to get at any of our praise by uh, bowing down to him and, and giving to, into his commands or his desires. We follow Jesus and Jesus alone and his example of 
it is written. It is written. Devil, you want to take away my joy, all this coronavirus stuff going on, and, and you want to make me fear because of my finances right now? Go to the Word and say, well, it is written that God will give me everything I need in my daily need. This is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We trust Him. Give him the word that says, if God is so concerned about the sparrow and the flowers of the field, how much more is he concerned about me? He even knows the numbers of hair on my head. Okay, And I know that's not very hard on mine. But nonetheless, he knows everything about me. And I'm going to go to those promises, and I'm not going to give the devil any of that praise. I'm not going to give him any enjoyment because I'm going to go to the word and trust in his, God's promises. It continues here in verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. Now, boy, I'll tell you, if you didn't see Haman as a picture of the devil and the Antichrist up to this point, I don't know how you can miss it now. Okay, Satan, first of all, surrounds himself with those who are loyal to him. He's proud He's prideful. You know, most we, we see that he has taken a third of the angels down with him. He has children just as God has children. Okay, John 8, for Jesus' own words, he says to the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And so he has children too. And this man, Haman, is speaking boastfully. It even says it, Haman boasted. And so Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, talks about this horn that had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And this is a picture of the Antichrist, the one that's to come. We remember Ezekiel 28 talking about Satan as well, talking about how proud he was of his acquisitions and how mighty he was walking in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden among the precious stones. Haman walks among the, the kingdom of, of uh, uh, Ahasuerus here. He's in the throne room of God, but he's going to be removed. He's going to be cast out. But at this point, he's proud on account of all of his beauty, all of the things that he's receiving. And Satan hates God's people, just as Haman here hates uh, Mordecai and all the Jews. And so again, it's even see, as long as I see that Jew, you can just see the disgust in him there, that, that Jew, Mordecai. Okay. Satan hates God's people today. Uh, Islam, I believe, is a very satanic religion. And it's not an accident that you know, the, the people that Islam wants to go again, that, 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 the, that their holy books speak against are what? Christians and Jews. That is not an accident. Not an accident at all. Because Satan can't stand seeing the light of God's love 
being shown through us. And so when he looks at us, he sees Mordecai. He sees Jesus. Make sense? You see, that's what he says. None of this gives me any pleasure because every time I see Mordecai, I'm disgusted. Well, Satan is going to hate us because every time he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees Mordecai. At least he should. And this is why God warned us. This is why the world is going to hate us because they hated Jesus first. And that's the picture shown. Closing out, it says this, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching up to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. So here we see in closing that Satan is scheming, but God is really scheming on our behalf at the same time. Like I said, God is still in control of this situation. To the Jew, it may look like it's out of control. But to God, he is completely at rest and at peace knowing what's going on. Just like today, guys, Satan is scheming against the church. He is scheming against you. But as long as we are resting in his presence, we have nothing to fear because God is scheming for us. Okay, not only in giving us Jesus, but in our day-to-day -day life, I believe that he is there watching out, protecting. He has created angels for you, right? What does Hebrews say? That the angels are created as ministers to the heirs of salvation. In other words, they were created for you. And I get so disgusted sometimes when you go to funerals and whatnot and you see these people and the angels and wings and they, it, it almost gives you this picture that, well, he's an angel now. No, don't demote me. Okay, when I die, I'm not going to become an angel. God created angels for me. And this is basically what we need to remember that we are not alone that uh, God is watching out for us. So while the world seems out of control, it isn't. That it may look like Satan's kingdom is winning. It's not. Here Haman is having a pole built. This huge pole. He's going to make a spectacle out of these Jews. He wants the world to see that these Jews are going to die. Mordecai is going to pay, and it's going to be a shameful death. Well, as we talked about last week, God is going to turn that table, and instead it's going to be Satan that will be put on display to be mocked, to be a lesson, and uh, ultimately for God to show his victory, and his, the battle has been won. And so when Jesus died on the cross, it says that he descended into hell right there in Peter, right? He descended into the lower depths of Sheol. Why? We see there in the Greek for really this very reason, to proclaim his victory. Guys, we have victory in Jesus Christ. We have the victory already won. And in essence, then, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world around us. It doesn't matter if there's an edict to arrest us and our children, because we already have won in Jesus Christ. We just have to be patient and wait and trust in him. 
So I'll close with that. And uh, if any of you guys have any questions or, or thoughts, uh, please share. I'll... And remember, you'll have to unmute yourself. While we're waiting for potential questions, uh, Brian, um, you know, I just really respect your your views on things. Um, you know, in the midst of of this study and and things like that, I know I've thrown some questions at you that um, can be maybe highly debated. Um, you know, and so I'm going to throw a couple at you tonight, and and just the the, the atmosphere of, of freedom and grace, you know, just to navigate this a little bit. Um, in chapter four, you talked a lot about, you know, you can't come unless you're called. Um, and so um, just curious, you probably know where I'm going with this, but do you think, um, you know, for, for people today, all people, is that calling present? Um, and everyone can choose whether or not to, to, um, turn toward that call. Um, or do you think there's a kind of a predestined, um, some are going to, to be called and some are not. Um, so kind of an elect and, and those that, um, are, are just not going to, to make the, the cut, if you will, um, you know, because that calling is not on their life. So um, I think probably the question would be, um, you know, election and predestination would be the general question. So, yeah. and I do believe that's a very important question. And like you said, in the spirit of grace and everything, I, when people disagree with me, um, it doesn't bother me on this. However, for me personally, I do believe this is a very important issue because I do think that God's very character is at stake here. I believe that, you know, scripture says God desires that none should perish. And, you know, on one side, the more of the Calvinistic side is going to say, well, he's only talking about the elect there. I don't see that. I see for God so loved the world. Not just the, in a, a small world of the, you know, a certain type of elect people, but the world. And that God has offered this to everybody and anybody. And I don't understand how God works fully in his uh, spiritual realm and all the spiritual rules involved there. But I do know that he loves us. And I think he loves every single person that's ever been created and we I, I think sometimes redefine words like elect you know and even there so only the elect well when we elect a, a president as an example that doesn't he he's president elect but it doesn't mean that he's saved it means that we have given him a job and he's going to do that job in Romans chapter 4, I believe it says, 
that what advantage is there in being a Jew? He says, much in every way, for they have been entrusted with the very words of God. And I think that that's really important because it is very telling that the Jews were the one that God gave to preserve the word of God, and they did a fantastic job of it. Dead Sea Scrolls have proven that. We would not have the word of God had it not been for the calling of the Jew. Some people think the Jews are just the elect. Well, no, uh, clearly even Jesus told some of those Pharisees that he says, you are of your father, the devil. Because they didn't receive him. Did they have an opportunity to? Yes. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own brothers. Okay, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And so I don't necessarily look, I think sometimes the word can be used in different ways, but typically when people see the elect, they think these are only saved people. I think these are the people that have been elected or chosen to do a certain job, and not all of them will be saved in some contexts of scripture. So I, I believe, yes, everybody has an opportunity. There is nobody that God is not willing to offer that grace to. I believe that we have a free will. And that's another thing that I think is at stake here is free will. Because to say that some are and some not gets rid of all free will, ultimately, in my opinion. Because this person, no matter what, not only can they not, but they will not be able to repent of their sins. And uh, there is no will involved. But uh, I see free will being a very foundational part of Scripture all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you look at the Garden of Eden, God placed the, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil in there in a very prominent place. And you have to ask why. Why would he do that? Well, the answer is because he wanted to give them a choice. He doesn't want robots to just simply be worshiping. He wants us to have a choice. And so I believe that God, we've all heard this idea that, you know, it's like a gift. God gives us, I can't accept it without him offering the gift. And frankly, I couldn't even take the gift without God empowering me to reach my hand out to do it. And so uh, salvation is all of God, nothing of my own doing, but it's by his grace and him even allowing me to not only offer the gift to me, but empowering me to take that gift. Um, but bottom line is, is that we also have the uh, free will to say, no, thanks. We don't want anything to do with this. And to me, that's what I see the character of God from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. Um, I even believe the Amorites and the Amalekites and all of them had the ability. This is why Jesus says the sin of the Am Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. There was still some good. We see one of the Israelite kings where the son uh, is, is, you know, he's the only one that I see some good in. Um, I just see it all throughout scripture that uh, we all have a, a free will, a free choice, and that God offers it to everybody, but not everybody's going to get it because they will reject it. Okay, so then the flip side of the coin, if there's a free will, um, as you're stating, um, what would be your view then on, you know, if somebody is uh, born again, so God has transplanted their heart of stone for a, 
part of flesh, and um, they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Um, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Um, you know, my father and I are one. Um, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Um, so with that in mind um, and free will in mind, once you're redeemed, um, is there ever a risk of falling out of your, your salvation in Jesus Christ? You know, a lot of times people ask me, or they'll accuse me of these weird false doctrines, like I don't believe in grace, grace alone, and all of this kind of just weird, sometimes really weird things. And it always amazes me because I say, you know, I'm an open book. You can go watch my videos and whatever, and you can see exactly what I believe. Well, this is a point in case here that you're not going to allow me to get away with anything. You're going to know what I believe. Now, this is a very touchy subject for some. Um, I, I see scriptures on both sides of this. I could give you probably about eight or nine scriptures saying you cannot lose your faith and about eight or nine scriptures, well, probably about 15 to 30 scriptures that say you can. And so what I have to do is look at this and I say, okay, well, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So what do I do with that? Hebrews, as an example, um, is it chapter 10? I, I don't remember, but it says this. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, shared in the Holy Spirit, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. And so if I look at that and say it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, Okay, enlightened, maybe they knew the truth. But then it says, who have shared in the goodness of the word of God, shared in the Holy Spirit. As we look at this, these are people who are saved, period. We even see in the Old Testament, Saul, as an example. God even says that he, for David that he would not take his spirit away from him as he did with Saul. Saul was anointed by God, had the Spirit of God, and God took it away. Now, people will say, well, yeah, but that was the Old Testament, okay? Now it's different. Well, not really. I think that that Old Testament is very, it only is the New Testament concealed. And now in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed, so we see it more clearly. And I see the New Testament saying the exact same thing in a number of places. And so how do I justify what appears to be a contradiction? I look at it this way. It's kind of both. And maybe that sounds like a cop-out, but I don't. it's the only way I can make sense of it in my mind. And that is this, that even it talks about a new convert, that an elder should not be a new convert. Why? Well, because he could give in to Satan and fall away. Well, I think that there's a time when we are a new convert and we don't take things seriously and, and maybe we're just learning and we're just kind of putting our toes in the water that it's a little easier maybe to turn away from it. We tried it, don't really like it. Now, again, it's very easy for the one side to say, well, they were just obviously never saved. But that's not what I see Hebrews saying here. Um, 
I look at it as this, that because we have a free will, I may not always remain faithful to God, but God, it is impossible for him to remain unfaithful to me. He must be faithful and will be just and faithful at all times, all through eternity to me. And so as a believer who has been enlightened, who has the word of God, who has the spirit of God, God is never going to take that away or on his part of that covenant. He is never, nobody's going to be able to snatch me out of his hand. But I can jump out of his hand. I can, in my own free will, decide I don't want this anymore. Too hard, whatever the case might be. And that's the only way that I can kind of make sense of it. We also have these verses that talk about to make your salvation sure. That we should have assurance of salvation. I can tell you as one who believes that people can fall away, I have assurance of my salvation. And I think that's also a very important point here too. Um, because it's my assurance of God's faithfulness to me. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine anybody convincing me of anything but the truth of scripture here now. But at the same time, I don't want to be so cocky and boastful that wave that in front of the devil's face and say, I dare you to try and, you know, because he's a smart guy, smarter than I am, and I don't want to give him credit. So I am always going to rely on God's faithfulness, and I'm going to rely on his grace and his mercy, and I am assured of that, and I'm going to rest in that, not putting my faith in my own knowledge my own um, wisdom, and uh, my own free will even. So I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but that's kind of how I see it, is that it's a little bit of both, that I think the further we go down this road of Christianity, the more secure, the deeper our roots get, and the harder it is to uproot that tree to where there may be a point in time in Christianity where it's like there's nobody that can uproot this anymore. And that's what God wants us to do. Um, and that's what this training in righteousness is all about, to get our roots to go so deep that when the storms come, that tree's not going to fall over. You know, uh, when doubts come, that we're not going to be uprooted, but that we have assurance. And that's kind of where I feel like in my life right now, uh, I've done my due diligence. Maybe in high school, it would have been a lot easier for somebody to come and sway me away, even though I believe with my whole heart I was a saved man when I was in high school. I think I, I'm thankful for God's protection of me because uh, I was dumb enough to be swayed by, by some things that, that, you know, could have easily. But, but God was good. He was always there for me. And um, so I still give him the credit for it. Well, thank you, Brian, for answering that and um, just being vulnerable and willing to, to touch on some, some hotter topics, if you will. Um, you know, those aren't like softballs that I'm just throwing to you that, uh, I mean, there's some, there was some heat, if you will, with that, but I think it's helpful. You know, there's people, um, just God-fearing, honest people that love the scriptures that don't see eye to eye on that. And, um, 
So it's just always good to, to hear perspective and, and why the scriptures that you, you referenced. And, you know, for me, um, I, I think there's a, a gray area for both views. The gray area for apostasy or walking away is at what point does that happen? And that's not really for me to determine. I mean, God knows your heart, not me. And so when does it actually take place? I think that's a bit of a gray area. If you're going to be yeah. uh, uh, in the camp that says you're once saved, you're always saved. Um, I know that there, there's times where if they feel like somebody, maybe they were at an event at the church, they come forward to the altar, they give their life to Jesus. And then three years later, they're just totally not living a life for Christ. And then, the, you know, I've heard comments like, well, they just they weren't ever saved to begin with. And it's like, well, that's a gray area. I think there's gray areas on both sides. So, I mean, who are you to determine? And part of that might be, well, because you'll know them by their fruit. And, you know, if the Holy Spirit's inside of you, there'll be the fruit of the Spirit. That I mean, if God is in you, there's going to be evidence. I mean, how amazing and awesome he is. If he lives in you, you're going to see evidence of that. Um, but I do think there's still the wrestling between the flesh and the spirit that takes place. I mean, we could see more fruit manifested in many people's lives, myself included, if I, if I yielded and submitted to the spirit more than my own flesh. And I think that's something we'll all wrestle with. And hopefully as we progress in years, it's, uh, you know, uh, a growth process that we don't look the same 30 years into our walk with the Lord as we did at the very beginning. You know, there's that process of, of sanctification. So I'm, I'm going to move on to a question that was texted to me here. Uh, this one is just a point of clarification. And I, I did message back and I said, oh, he's six day. But the question was, when you referenced the thousand years to the day, um, just to clarify, you see creation as six literal days, correct? Absolutely. Okay, and so I think I just can't see scripture saying anything else, but that those six literal days are symbolic and pictures of uh, a thousand years of history. Like I said, throughout history, way back to, you know, the Jewish sages, they, they saw that, but that God created in six 24 hour days, somewhere around probably 6,000 years ago. And, uh, that, uh, but just like God does patterns, that's part of his pattern that he's used. So yeah, okay. definitely so, good, uh, good clarification. Day seven, day seven, Sabbath rest. Um, so in the, the 7,000 year period, um, that was one thing you didn't touch on when you were going through the, the six days. Um, yeah. The day seven would just be Hebrews chapter four. It says there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God that, uh, he is going to enter us into that kingdom, um, on the seventh day, which is kind of what Hosea chapter six seems to indicate as well. And so I'm not going to be dogmatic on, you know, those patterns, but it is something that I do see throughout scripture. And, uh, but, but yeah, the seventh day would be a picture of what Hebrews four is talking about that, uh, Sabbath rest for God's people. And so do you feel like we have to enter a new millennium for that to take place with the yeah. 
the viewpoints? Yeah, I do believe that it's also the Revelation 20 is a picture of that. Now, I'm not going to pretend to understand any of it because it's just like, you know, prophecy is very clear looking back, but looking ahead, who knows? But based on the patterns, I would see Re uh, Revelation 20, uh, that that is a literal thousand year period to come. I know that there are those who believe that we are in that period right now. We are in the millennial reign right now. I just can't see... Um, while I understand that, because they do make some interesting arguments about what happened in 70 AD, you know, being fulfill a fulfillment of Matthew 24 and so on, there are too many things that aren't fulfilled and haven't happened. So I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what it is. Matter of fact, that's, that's an area that I'm really foggy on, uh, because there's a lot of scriptures that seem to indicate things going on in that time that we clearly haven't seen, um, but I don't understand. Um, I can make some sense of it in my mind, but whether that's it or not, I don't know. But um, I do believe that there will be a literal thousand-year reign. Um, even in Revelation, we see that there is an Armageddon battle. Then there's a thousand-year period, and then Satan is cast, you know, into the pit. First, we see the false prophet and the Antichrist being thrown into the pit. Then the thousand years then Satan goes there as well. So even that uh, order of events doesn't seem to say that we could be in it now or else the false prophet and the uh, Antichrist are already in hell, you know, in, in the, the abyss, the lake of fire, really hell. And I don't uh, see that as something that's happened yet either. Thank you for clarification on the six day, uh, 6,000 comparison. Uh, any other questions, um, you're welcome to throw it in the chat bar if you kind of want to keep some privacy, <laughs> um, or you're welcome to unmute and, and ask a question there. Um, one question came, the one about the six days came to me through text message, so um, just offer it up another moment here if anybody has any questions for Brian regarding tonight, or uh, maybe just something that he said here even in the Q&A that you're curious. And one thing while we wait maybe for a question to come in too, to just an added clarification too on this idea of the once saved, always saved type thing. Um, just like you said, many of my dear friends are, you know, on the opposite side of that than me. And, and like I said, I don't know if it's quite the opposite because I'm kind of uh, in the middle of it. But, um, I, I see dangers on both sides and those that really are against that you can fall away, see the dangers, uh, you know, that, oh, if you don't, then we're not accepting the gospel and the assurance of what he's done. And, and on the other side, there are dangers too, because, you know, when we, when I meet people on the street a lot, you know, we, we, in evangelism, it's, they're, they're so assured of their salvation because they've gone to church and they pray at night you know, those kinds of things. And we could say, yeah, but what's their fruit look like? I'll tell you, I, I've known some people who have had, by all outward appearance, some very good fruit that seem to be walking with the Lord for years and no longer are today, are atheists. And so I think there's a danger in both sides of it, that we are so assured of our salvation that we lose the fear of God, that we, we lose the... Um, uh, 
I guess the the desire to obey him, maybe, I don't know. And on the flip side, that there are those who are always trying to be good enough to make sure that they're saved, to get to that point, that I have enough fruit. And I think that's a danger too, because it puts it on us being the one who has to be good enough to be saved. And we're always trying to prove to ourselves and make sure that, yeah, I'm saved because, boy, look at all of these things. And I know that that, that it's kind of an internal battle that goes on in between or inside that person because they know they're saved by grace. But how do I know that I'm saved? Well, because my fruit and well, what, what does my fruit look like? And they start looking inward at their fruit rather than trusting fully in the promises of God. So I see dangers on both sides of that that I think we need to be careful about. So looks like there's lots of fruit and now they're not at all walking with the Lord. Um, people that it seems like minimal fruit, but yet they're, they're a believer. Um, you know, one passage I've heard in regards to that, um, is in first Corinthians three, when it talks about, um, Paul says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building by, by God's grace. Um, uh, it's been given to me. I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so that's the foundation. So what are you building on that foundation? Uh, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. So the foundation is the same, no matter what your building materials, the foundation is still Jesus Christ. He says his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he's built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved but only as one escape through the flames. I guess I've seen that passage and I've also heard it preached on um, that in some ways there are people who they're saved. They're just not building on that foundation that is present in their life um, based on that particular passage. Is that how you would view that as well? Absolutely. And that's, I think, the danger of that, too, just this whole looking at our fruit. Um, you know, even the thief on the cross, what fruit did he have in his life? Probably not a lot outside of his confession of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's a very dangerous game, this once saved, always saved. The only person that I can tell who saved is me. I can't tell that about you or anybody else. All I know is me. And I'm not supposed to be judging the salvation of others. Um, and so it's a doctrine that I really am uncomfortable with on either side of it um, to, to even be concerned about that. For me, it's kind of like, you know, when I got married, I, my wife and I said, there's one word we will never use. And that's the D word, divorce. Okay, that no matter how angry we get, no matter, that is never an option. It is just not an option. Likewise, I think that we should have that attitude as believers that it's not an option 
not to obey God. It's not an option to fall away anymore. I'm going to walk in faith, period. I'm going to have assurance, period. And that's all I need to worry about. I don't have to worry about God not being faithful to me. Okay, I'm just going to continue walking. And so it's just, to me, that's kind of the once saved, always saved, is I don't want to give people a, a way out. I don't want to, um, you know, make them think about things they shouldn't be thinking about, that type of thing, you might say, if that makes sense. Thank you, Brian. Uh, so while we've uh, taken a little time there to walk through that, does anybody have any other questions before we, uh, we wrap up our evening together? Well, if there's not, and if you're hanging on to one or something, I'm sure we can pick it up again next week. Um, and uh, at that point, I, I do want to close us in prayer and, um, and end our evening together. Thank you again, Brian, for, for leading us tonight. And, and um, we just really appreciate you. Um, so let's pray together, everybody. Father, we thank you so much for this evening, the time that we spent in the word. Thank you for the gifts that you've given Brian, the wisdom that you've given Brian uh, through your grace, Lord, at work in his life. Um, and to know, Lord, uh, as we are all studying this, the scriptures together, I'm sure there's things we're all chewing on tonight. And I thank you for that. Um, I just, I really appreciate uh, this this ministry outlet. And I thank you for everybody that joined us tonight and perhaps is joining us uh, with the recording. I just pray, Lord, we continue to grow in our walk with you. And we're so thankful for your faithfulness to us and uh, help us to be found faithful. Um, help us to walk in obedience um, and uh, truly be people that, that are walking by the spirit and and not of our own sin nature our own flesh um, so guide us lord and we just lift this all to you i pray for a blessing and protection over every home and especially over brian and as he prepares for next week uh, lord just pour your spirit out over him as he continues to lead us in this study and we thank you for this now in jesus name we pray amen <laughs>